Um, if you are new, though, I want to catch you up on what we've been doing all year long. We've been doing something really cool this year called The Whole Story. We've been going through the entire story of the Bible uh, from start to finish. We've broken it up into 14 different series. As you can see, we've been making our way through it. I love that where we're at today, I'll talk about that in a second, but uh, our next series after the one we're starting today is called The New Human, and that's when Jesus first steps onto the scene. So we're almost to Jesus. Like, how awesome is that? We've, we've made it all the way to Jesus. And uh, if you're a Jesus follower, I'll be honest, I expected more applause for Jesus, but it's okay. Um, I don't know if that's a, there we go. Jesus got some woos. I think Jesus deserves that. That's awesome. So I'm excited about that. That means that today it's our final series as we're making our way through what is typically called the Old Testament. And that series is called Shattered and Scattered. Shattered and Scattered. Now, we know that that sounds a lot like like hash brown options at Waffle House. That's why we just leaned into that. And if you came early today, we had a Waffle House hash brown bar. That was a lot of fun. And so that's why we had that. We said, you know what? Sounds like Waffle House. Let's just go all the way. Um, and by the way, I saw a few people having bowls in their hands and then like not knowing if you could walk in here with the bowl of hash browns or not. You absolutely can. And if you're like, well, I didn't know that. Maybe there's still some out there. It won't offend me if you go to just get more and come back. I'm not gonna be upset about that at all. Um, this is a really interesting series that we're gonna be in for the next few weeks. And even if you're new and you haven't been here for all of it, don't worry. Uh, every single Sunday stands on its own. Every series definitely stands on its own. But we get to this really pivotal moment in the story of scripture today. And it's a moment when everything seems like it falls apart. When everything breaks so completely that it seems virtually impossible for it ever to be put back together. And I'm sure that's a feeling that many of us are familiar with. I got to experience a very lighthearted version of that feeling just a few months ago. I've got four kids, I talk about them all the time. They give me so much material, it's great. Um, and, and they give me permission to share it, by the way. We have a whole system worked out. The older they get, I actually pay them for the right to use stories. Um, it's a thing, you know, that it, it's great, it's great. My two youngest boys, my two youngest children, Judah and Eli, they're two years apart. They share everything. They share a room. Uh, they're best friends. They're also bitter enemies. It just changes like every five minutes. They go back and forth. They're amazing. And about six months ago, they started playing this, this video game together, like constantly, more than, than they probably ought to. But I was so enjoying watching them do something together as a team that I was just like, this is good. This is good. Let's lean into this. And it's a game that they played called Wobbly Life wobbly life. And it's just a really silly game. Um, in fact, I think we have some footage that we'll, we'll put up. Um, but it's just this silly game where you play as these little wobbly characters and you just do like part-time jobs, like you deliver pizza, you work a farm, and then you get money in the game, not real money, and you use that money to buy houses, to buy like boats and cars, to buy clothing. And so basically they spent several months practicing having part-time jobs. And I'm okay with that as a father. Um, but one day, one day when my, my son Judah was at school, Eli's a little younger, he wasn't in school yet at the time. I'm, I'm at home working and I hear this like, this scream. And it just sounds like disaster has struck, there's a crisis. And I go upstairs and there's Eli and he's laying on the floor and, and the screen is on, it's on the, the title screen for Wobbly Life and he's just laying down yelling, it's all gone. He's just on the floor going, it's gone, it's all gone, I've lost it all. He was like a stockbroker in 1929, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm, and I'm trying to figure out what happened, and so, I, you know, he's hysterical. I mean, he's like, he's hysterical. So I'm like, like Eli, come on, dude, what, what happened? He's like, I lost it all, it's gone. And he doesn't, he's yet to figure out how to say the word deleted. He thinks it starts with a B, so he just looked at me with these huge tears in his eyes, and he screams, I deleted it. And I, I put two and two together, like, oh, he, he thinks he did something where he somehow like erased all their stuff. Because you have to understand that after months of playing this game, my sons, I'm just bragging on my boys, my sons had become wobbly life moguls. The amount of real estate that they own, I mean, we're talking tycoon level, right? They own all the houses, they own factories, they have more cars than you can imagine. The clothing, it's just off the wall. Like they own, they own the world in wobbly life. And he thinks that he, you know, bleated all of it 
And here's what I said. I was like, son, I'm sure you didn't delete it. I'm sure it's just, that I'm sure we can get it all back. You think you've hit, like surely they wouldn't make it easy to delete everything, right? No way. So I reassured him, I'm sure, give daddy the control, I'll figure this out. He got his hopes up, he calmed down, but I was wrong. Uh, he had in fact deleted everything. It was all gone and so when I confirmed that, yes son, it's, I don't know how to tell you this, you've lost it all. You know, the hysterics turned back on. And it was hard because I had this moment. It's like this dynamic you have as a parent of small children where I know that this is no big deal. This is nothing. This is a video game. This doesn't matter. But from his, you know, five-year-old perspective, four or five-year-old perspective, this is, the, this is the most he's ever lost in life. He feels like he worked hard. He earned all this stuff. He did the jobs. And now he has nothing to show for it. And I can, I can appreciate that. So I sort of met him where he was at for a few minutes and I'm, I'm honestly grateful as a dad when there are low stakes opportunities to learn life lessons, but I, I got him out of it. And then he had this moment of panic where he said, Judah is gonna kill me. <laughs> and I told him, no, bud, your brother loves you so much, he's gonna be fine. But <laughs> I was wrong. No, no, actually Judah... <laughs> It was kind of funny, like, it, it was sort of surreal. I picked him up from the bus and I said, Judah, we gotta talk, man. Before we get home, I just need you to prepare yourself for what I'm about to tell you and trust dad when he says it's gonna be okay, right? And I had to give him the whole news. You know, they had this feeling, these, these young boys, this feeling like we've lost everything. It's all gone. And that's a lighthearted, silly example. And I, I use that on purpose because I know that in each of our lives, we have not so lighthearted, not so silly examples of where we feel like things have been broken beyond repair, we've lost everything that maybe matters to us or something so precious, or maybe someone so precious, that it just makes us question everything. It makes us wonder if life could ever be the same again. And that's the, that's the pervasive feeling operating in the lives of the people that we're gonna study for the next few weeks. You see, up to this point, we've been following, for the most part, the story of the nation of Israel. The Old Testament tells us the story of this group of people that God literally picks, and he picks them out of obscurity. It starts with a man named Abraham who's just a childless shepherd. And he calls them and, and tells them, makes them promises that they're gonna become a great nation, that they're gonna have all this, this land, that they're gonna be a, a mighty people, and against all odds, that happens. And it's not by their own strength. Not even close. They don't have enough strength. They don't have enough might to do it themselves. They're surrounded by much more powerful nations in the traditional sense, but they have the favor of God. And time and time again, God does miraculous things to rescue them, to establish them, and to protect them. But if you've been here for the last few series, things haven't been going so well. Things haven't been going so well. They have been drifting further and further from God. They've been ignoring God. They've been, they've been following false gods left and right. They've tolerated so much idolatry, so much immorality, so much injustice, and God has warned them. In fact, last week we talked about the prophets, these, these people that God sent to them to say, hey, you gotta stop. Like, I love you, but I cannot let things get this bad and stay this bad. And so they've, they've been warned and they've ignored those warnings. In fact, they've even killed many of the prophets that God sent to warn them. And now the day of reckoning has come. It starts with the northern kingdom of Israel. They're conquered by the Assyrians. And then a short time after, at least in the scope of history, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, where the capital of Jerusalem is, where their temple is, they are completely overrun, destroyed, and defeated by the Babylonians. We get there in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter one, verses one and two says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. And that's it. It's the end of an era. It's the end of an era. There, there's no more Israel as a nation. There's no more Judah. There's no more Jerusalem. There's no more temple. It's, it's gone. Forget about your, your favorite political candidate losing an election. This is like you don't have a nation anymore. 
And so much of their identity has always been wrapped up in the fact that they're this, this people that God has, has picked and set apart and they've grown into this mighty nation and now all of that is, it's all gone. They've lost it all. And this time, David does not defeat Goliath. Their, their nation is completely shattered and their people are scattered. Everything changes. And it's hopeless and it's dark. And yet, it's amazing how often this is the turn in scripture. And, and yet, we have these stories of these men and women who find themselves living in the aftermath of the disaster. And in unbelievably difficult circumstances, find a way to navigate life so perfectly that we actually have some of the most inspirational and aspirational stories that we have in the entirety of scripture in the aftermath of this devastation. In this shattered and scattered world, we get people like Daniel, who we're gonna look at today, along with a few of his friends. We get people like, like Nehemiah. We get people like Queen Esther. And they live these unbelievable lives in very difficult situations, situations that are so hard, they have to thread the needle. There's not a lot of wiggle room. There's no margin for error. They have to operate so perfectly in order to succeed. And they do because God is with them. And, and see if this sounds familiar. See if this tracks for a second. These are people who find themselves living in a broken culture. And it's a culture that does not share their values it's a culture that does not see things the way that, that they see things. It's a culture that does not encourage them in any way, any serious way to follow God. In fact, it's a culture that very often pushes them and gives them every incentive not to follow God. It's a culture that makes it very difficult for them to, to live by, by their values and beliefs without facing hostility. It's a culture that, that operates in such a way that if they're going to, to live well and live for the Lord, they're gonna have to go against the grain over and over again. Does that sound familiar or relatable? It's amazing how often the stories of scripture translate directly to our lives. And I'm not saying that the world we live in is as bad as Babylon. But, but there, someone just went, ah, I don't know. I don't know, I've never been to Babylon, so I don't know, maybe I can't say that for real. I'm not saying it's as dire of a situation as it was back then, but I, I am saying that we can relate to this, that these people provide for us a blueprint of how to live well and how to live for the, the Lord in a culture that isn't helping you do that at all. There's a lot to learn. And we're gonna start with a man named Daniel and three of his friends. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go through three stories from the book of Daniel, and we're just gonna go through them one after another, all in one chunk. And then we're gonna, we're gonna ask ourselves, what's the takeaway? What's the one thing that these people show to us that gives us the ability to emulate them, to learn from them, to learn from the Lord, and say, this is how I'm gonna live my life in light of what I've learned. And so I'm gonna start with Daniel chapter one. Daniel chapter one. It says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. They had these these strict laws in their, their old country about what was right to eat and was, was not right to eat. And Daniel says, I'm not doing it. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel, but he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. 
Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. And at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret meanings of visions and dreams. And when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter, any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians or enchanters in his entire kingdom. Amen. So these guys stand out. They make a name for themselves. And they're now established as trusted advisors in the kingdom of Babylon. And if you turn the chapter to chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And it's a really freaky dream involving a, a gold statue with other metals that are part of the statue. And, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what to do. He, the dream really bothers him. So he, he basically orders his men to tell him what the dream means or else. And the only one who has the ability to do it is, is Daniel because God's given them, him this ability to interpret dreams. And so God tells Nebuchadnezzar, or God tells uh, Daniel the interpretation of the dream. Daniel tells it to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, man, you're amazing, you're incredible, and your God must be amazing. Now Daniel's even able to share his God with the king. But if you turn the chapter to chapter three, uh, somehow the takeaway that Nebuchadnezzar has from this, this whole thing is like way off. Because he decides that the logical thing to do after having a dream where he's a statue made of gold is to actually make a giant statue made of gold of himself and make everyone worship it. Like he does that. Just imagine, imagine living in a culture where the person in leadership is like, hey, uh, you have to worship me. He, he builds this giant gold statue and at a certain time every day, everyone has to bow down and worship the statue. And you know, if, if these guys weren't comfortable eating, eating meat and wine, you gotta know where they're headed with this decision. And so we get there in Daniel chapter three, it says that some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king, you issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue that when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. I don't know why they say other, it's like, I don't know if they're naming all the instruments. That feels like a pretty complete list, but whatever. It says that decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you've put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and they do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up. I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we wanna make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Mm, I love that. Like I, These guys are bold. These guys are bold. And so this is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fire. Like he's a man of his word. He backs up what he says. He throws them into the fire, but miraculously they don't die. In fact, it's, it's amazing because Nebuchadnezzar freaks out for a minute and he says like, I thought we threw three guys into the fire and the, the people with him are like, we did. And he's like, well, I see four. And one of them looks a little different. One of them looks, he says, like the, the son of, of God. And then he brings them all out and he apologizes and he worships their God. And many scholars will say that 
this is one of many examples of, of Jesus before he, he comes to earth as one of us, of Jesus, the Son of God, appearing on the earth. We have to remember, I know we're getting to the Jesus story in a few weeks, but, but Jesus became a person, but Jesus is not just a human being. He's existed since the very beginning. And so they have this amazing experience, they're rescued, they stick to their guns, and they're saved. And as time goes on, uh, Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, like literally loses his mind, goes crazy, loses his entire kingdom. Babylon is a very short-lived empire. And, and they're taken over by the Medes and then eventually the, the Persians, that's kind of all one giant kingdom. And so Nebuchadnezzar is replaced by another king named Darius, Darius the Mede. And Darius recognizes right away, just like Nebuchadnezzar did, that man, these guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, whatever names you wanna use for them, they're, they're amazing. They're brilliant, and he makes them top advisors in his court, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. And then we get to, to Daniel chapter six. And in Daniel chapter six, there's these guys who are advisors to the king, but they're jealous of the favor that Daniel has. And they know what Daniel believes and who Daniel worships, and so they convince Darius to sign this decree that says anyone who prays to someone other than, than him or, or his gods should be executed that it would be unlawful to, to pray or to worship someone other than him, right? And turns out it's not that hard to flatter a king. That when people have a lot of power, they like having people around them who, who tell them how wonderful they are. And so they're able to convince King Darius to, to sign this decree and then they, they know what's gonna happen. They know that Daniel is like clockwork. He prays three times a day. He prays at a window. You can see him do it so they just wait for the chance to catch him because they want him gone. And so in Daniel chapter six, it says, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. Like he doesn't even hide it. He doesn't even close his windows. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. And then the officials went to, together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law for the next 30 days? Any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? They've upgraded from fire to lions. That's pretty cool, I think. Um, yes, the king replied, the decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. And then they told the king, well, that man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law the king signs can be changed. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and he couldn't sleep all night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. And when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed, and he ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. And then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. The lions leapt on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. So... You know, God didn't do that, the king did that. It's an intense story. We have these three really classic, really powerful stories. And if you're someone who grew up in church as a kid, you heard these stories. You heard like the kid's version of the stories that usually ended before uh, the men, women, and children died in the lion's den. Like they kind of like stopped there. He was rescued. And, and these stories, they're not just interesting and entertaining, they're powerful because they show us, they show us a quality in these men that we can learn from. And it's a quality that's actually very rare, but it is one that will allow us, just like them, to navigate and to live well 
in a world and in a culture that does not share the same values that we hold dear. You see, Daniel and his friends, they are people of conviction. They're people of conviction. And they live their lives based on their convictions. Last year, we did a whole series called Living with Conviction. And the point of that series was a little different. We were going through the book of Romans and we were talking about what we do as believers when we have different convictions. Believe it or not, some of the people in this room don't share the same exact convictions that you share. They maybe don't vote the same way that you vote. I know that's mind blowing. Like some of you may have a deep conviction that drinking alcohol is wrong. And you might be sitting right in front of someone who brews beer in their garage and that's fine. Right? We talked about how all those convictions sort of differ and what we do with that. Uh, but the idea that we had to establish in that series is that there's this thing called conviction and it's really important. In fact, Romans chapter 14 puts it really succinctly. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, and they were using diet as an example, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it, for you're not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you're sinning. They define sin as going against your own convictions. And we talked about how our convictions are very much informed by our belief in God and, and the values that God has. We shouldn't have convictions that wildly differ from what the Lord has said, if, at least if we're Jesus followers. And if we do, we gotta wrestle with that and figure that out. But we have these things called convictions. What we believe is good, what we believe is true. And the question is, will we be people who live out of our convictions or will we be people who live out of convenience? It really is one of those two choices. And we make all kinds of decisions on a daily basis out of convenience, and that's fine. That has its place. But significant growth never happens as a result of convenience. It's all about conviction. And so I wanna look at, at three very simple takeaways, three observations about conviction that I think all of us can grab a hold of, all of us can apply, that we learn from these stories. And number one is really simple. Your convictions will set you apart. Your convictions will set you apart. What gets Daniel and his friends noticed? It's their convictions. They take a stand, they say, you know what? This, we don't believe this is right that their attendant is worried that this is gonna lead to their ruin and consequently his ruin, but actually, because they live by their convictions, because they stick to their guns, they stand out. It sets them apart. They're different than everybody else. They're cut from a different cloth and, and they're recognized and even honored as a result of that. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you stand out as a result of your convictions. I actually had it happen to me one time, and I think I've shared this story before, so apologies if you heard it. But, but I had this happen in a really weird, like random way when I was in college. And so um, I worked at Chili's when I was in college. I always love in a, in a room this big just to wonder, has anyone else ever worked at Chili's, the restaurant, like any other fellow? All right, a couple of Chili's people, here we go. Yeah, there we go, we've got something in common. Yeah, my career path went blockbuster video. Any blockbuster video employees from the past, anybody? A few, yeah. I actually know we have a Blockbuster former executive here. So, I mean, that's cool. So, you know, Blockbuster, uh, then Kohl's, all right? Anybody work at Kohl's? A couple, yeah. Blockbuster, Kohl's, Chili's. We should form a small group here at the church. People who have worked, that's all that it is. We just, we worked at these places, right? That was, it was Blockbuster, Kohl's, Chili's, Church. That's my, that's my, my career path. And so I'm working at Chili's, just trying to make money as a college student. And, uh, and I go through all this training. And one of the things that they told us in training is that if you're ever sweeping underneath your table at the end of the night and you happen to sweep up like a, a piece of silverware, a fork, a knife, spoon, into your dustpan, do not throw it away, reach in there and pull it out and then put it where, where all the dishes get washed. And you know the challenge with that is that it's gross, right? If you have tons and tons of tables all day long and food is dropped and there's things that are spilled and you know, you don't know how well the person cleaned it the day, the week, or maybe the year before. Um, you just, all kinds of interesting stuff gets swept into that dustpan. And so one night, very early, I think I'd only been there like a week or two, I'm, I'm doing my thing, I, I, I did my tables, I'm cleaning them off, and I'm sweeping underneath, and I hear the sound, the unmistakable sound of a piece of silverware in my dustpan. And I was like, dang it. And I sat there, and I remember, I can still remember like the mental 
like the mental thoughts, the exercises that I was going through, like I don't wanna do this, it's gross, I don't, I've been here all day long, I don't feel like it, it's a fork, who cares? We have thousands of forks, like I, we had thousands of forks, I think. But then there was this, this verse from scripture that just jumped into my mind and it was, do everything you do as if you're doing it for the Lord. Everything you do, do it as if you're doing it for the Lord. So I was like, oh. You know, sometimes when you have convictions, you don't like them. You don't have to like your convictions all the time. You just have to follow them. And so I was like, oh, God, why? Okay, so I reach down, I pull out the fork, I walk it back, I put it in the, in the little dishwasher area, come back, finish my thing. What I didn't know is that my manager, Michelle, uh, the woman who had hired me and, and done the trainings, Michelle saw that happen. She saw it. I didn't know that. I was just in a little corner and she brings me over and it was a strange interaction because she was like, hey, I saw what you did. And I'm like, I, I don't know, what did I? Like, you don't assume it's a good thing when someone says, I saw what you did. Your brain just instantly goes to what crime have I committed that I forgot about, right? <laughs> and I was like tempted to say it'll never happen again, but I didn't know what she was talking about. So she says, I saw what you did. And I was like, uh, what did I do? She said, you reached down and pulled a fork out from your dustpan. Why did you do that? And again, I'm confused and I'm just going, uh, didn't, you, didn't you tell us to do that? And she goes, yes, but no one does. <laughs> she's like, so I just, she, she was curious. And so I'm like, oh, what do I do? And, and I was like, well, okay, this might sound cheesy, but in the Bible, it says that you should do everything you do as if you're doing it for God. And that's why I did it. And she had a very puzzled look on her face. Like she wasn't someone that went to church. She wasn't a Jesus follower at all. I think she was actually pretty against it, to be honest, with some conversations that we had later. But in that moment, she said, this was her takeaway. She said, so you're telling me that as long as you work here, you're gonna pretend like I'm God. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess, yeah. Please be nice. You know, like, like what, what do you say? And she just said, huh. That's all she said. She said, huh, and walked away. And the cool thing about that is that, that that moment must have stuck out to her because pretty much immediately after that, I just, I got better sections. You know, in, in restaurants, there's certain sections that are just better than the others. And I got better shifts and she was really favorable with me most of the time until I quit and she wasn't happy, but whatever. Like, <laughs> it was just a small, stupid moment, right? It was a, it was a fork but I, I did something simple out of conviction and it set me apart. Whatever your convictions are, and it's important to know them, like it's important to know them well enough that you might even sit and list some of them out. I believe it's super important that in all situations, you do this, you do that. If you live by your convictions, you will find yourself set apart from the, from the rest. You will stand out, you will be noticed. I'm not saying all the attention is good, but you will definitely be set apart if you're a person who lives by conviction. Daniel and his friends show us that. And if you're living in a world that doesn't share your values, if you gotta navigate it, you gotta live by conviction. Your convictions will set you apart. Number two, your convictions will get you in trouble. They will. Like, they will. If you truly live by conviction, there will be moments where you do the thing that you believe is right and you just trust God and live with the fallout and you find yourself in hot water. That happens. And I'm sure many of us have examples of that in our lives. And, and it's awesome that in these stories, it all works out, right? They get thrown into a fire, but they don't die. Like how often does that happen? Never, except for that time, right? He gets thrown into a lion's den, but he doesn't die. God sends an angel and it shuts the, the mouths of the lions and, and there we go. So it'd be great if I could tell you that, hey, every single time you live by your convictions and get into trouble, God will rescue you. Every single time. That would just be a lie. So for example, there's a, a man in the Old Testament named Uriah. And Uriah is a soldier, a very decorated soldier who fights in the army of King David. Uriah also happens to be married to a woman named Bathsheba and David sees Bathsheba one day while Uriah is out to war. And he's like, I like the way she looks. He has an affair with Bathsheba. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And David's like, what do I do? So he has this brilliant idea. He said, I know, I'll just get Uriah to come back from the battle. I'm the king. I can pull those strings. Uriah will come back. He'll be so excited to be back with his wife. They'll be together. And then when he finds out that she's pregnant, he'll just assume that it's from that moment. And so that's what he orchestrates. And Uriah comes back. And it says that, it says that Uriah 
refused to go into his house, wouldn't even go into his own home. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what is the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab, who is the commander of the army, and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Uriah is a man of conviction. He says, I can't can't do that. It wouldn't be right for me to go and enjoy all of that when all of my friends and my fellow soldiers are, are roughing it and they're risking their lives. I, I couldn't live with myself. I won't do it. And David realizes, oh no, we've got a man of conviction here. What should we do? And so he just kills him. Um, well, hold on. He has him killed. It's a little different. He has him killed. So that, you might say, well, that didn't work out well for Uriah. So why would I live by conviction if that might be the result? And the question you have to ask yourself is would I rather die with integrity or live without it? Would I rather be a person who, who, who dies, if that's what it takes, to have integrity, to have peace with myself, and to know that I have done what I believe is right? Or would I rather be someone who lives knowing that I have betrayed my conscience and I just don't have much of a moral compass? I know those are two extremes. And rarely do we find ourselves in either of those extremes. Usually it's somewhere in the middle, but look, I look at Uriah's story and it's heartbreaking and it's sad, but then, you know, here's the reality. Everybody dies. Not everybody dies with integrity. And so if you live by your convictions, no doubt you will get into trouble, but you will have peace with yourself. You will have integrity. And most of the time you will be you'll be fine, you'll, you'll come out the other side and you'll be fine. But there might be times where there are serious consequences to living by your convictions and we just have to decide as people are we willing to live with that. And I know many of you, I know your stories and I know that many of you had moments where you had to make a difficult decision based on a conviction and it cost you. And all I can say to you is that there's nothing that you could lose by doing what's right that God cannot restore or repay. And whether that happens on this side of heaven or the other, I don't know. But I just wanna look at God one day and be like, I did what I believed was right. I think that that would be pretty special. So your convictions will set you apart. Your convictions will get you into trouble, but, but here's, I think, the big one for me. Your convictions, this is the third point, your convictions will drastically simplify your life. Now, this might seem a little counterintuitive based on what we just said, because I basically just said on the last one, hey, your convictions will make your life hard. And that's true. To have convictions is, convictions are often inconvenient. So to live by conviction does not mean you will have an easy life, but it will mean you have a much more simple life. Simple and easy are not the same thing. Keep that in mind. The beautiful thing about convictions is that they have this way of drastically simplifying your life because many decisions are just made for you. And so let's say, for example, that you have a personal conviction against eating meat. I, I personally don't know why. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tasted meat. It's amazing. It's truly incredible. God actually commanded the people of the Old Testament to cook meat on a constant basis as a form of worship. Just saying, okay. Um, well, let's say you have that conviction. Let's say you, you have it. And, uh, and I've known many people that, that do. Um, I remember the first time I met a vegan, I worked at a Mexican restaurant. And I was like, uh, there was a, there, I, I lied to you, I guess, on accident. There was a short stint in between Chili's and the church where I was at a different restaurant. That's all that happened, right? I just left Chili's, different, whatever. And I remember having this lady come in and this was like 2004. And she said, I'm a vegan. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know if it was like a religion or what. And I said, well, the, great. I'm a Christian, like, what do you say? I don't know. Um, and she explained what that meant. And she's like, I can't have any meat. I'm like, okay, so you're a vegetarian. She's like, no, I'm a vegan. I'm like, well, what is it? She's like, I can't have butter, can't have cheese, can't have anything that's been cooked with any type of animal product. I'm like, you're in a Mexican restaurant. This is a problem, right? I can bring you a tortilla and some lettuce and that's all we got. <laughs> and so I just don't know what kind of oil the tortilla was fried in. So I, who knows, maybe not, but... But if you had a conviction against eating meat, it would simplify your choices at a restaurant, 
right? You'd open up the menu and most of the choices, they've been made for you. You just go, I have fewer options. And that at the very least is a simplifying thing. I think life works best when it's simple. We get things way complicated and convictions simplify your life because they actually make decisions for you. If you live out of your convictions, you will find yourself in situations where the choice has already been made for you. Where you'll say, hey, because I've already said yes to these values, because I've said yes to Jesus, I already know what the right decision is. It simplifies your life and that's truly amazing. I would rather have a life that has challenges and difficulty, but is simple, than, than have a life where I'm searching for convenience and ease, but I'm, I'm having to just figure things out like crazy every single day and, and everything's all complicated. Simplicity is wonderful. And if you have deep convictions and you live by them, it simplifies your life. Most of your decisions have already been made. And that does present challenges, but it makes it a lot easier for you. I'll give you a really current example that actually has to do with our church right now. And I know that some of you are brand new here and some of you have been here for a very long time. And so we have this conviction, or at least I have this conviction, and it's something we've talked about a lot for the last few years. This it is a conviction that we're supposed to be a one gathering church, one service. And so maybe you're here for the first time and you're like, well, there's not a lot of options as far as service times. That's true, that's by design. And, and that's something that we really felt very strongly. We really, I'm just saying it, we felt like God was leading us to be a one gathering church. And I could talk to you for hours about all the reasons why. A lot of it has to do with simplicity and unity. You know, things like what we did this morning where you can just come early and grab some food and sit and talk to people. A lot of times after church, we have food trucks. We're gonna do one of those again really soon. And you can just hang out afterwards and eat and talk to people. Stuff we couldn't do if we had a bunch of different gatherings. And there's nothing wrong with a church having a lot of gatherings. We're kind of unique. We have a big building. We have a big parking lot. We're surrounded by big parking lots. And so let's try this. What if we were like the most unified, simple and organization church that has ever existed or that we've ever heard of, what would that be like? And that's what we're living in right now. And so that's a conviction. We're supposed to be a one gathering church until we literally have no other option. But that has come with challenges because we have grown by about 400 people in weekly attendance in the last year. And that is not nothing, right? That's, that's, that's not nothing. So here's what that's created. Um, Sure, there you go, okay. I don't know if that's the 400 new people that are like, I'm glad to be here, or the people who were already here before being like, welcome to the family. I'm not sure who it is or mixed, but, but yeah. So my point is that there have been so many moments in the last year where we're like, should we just add a service? Because it would make, in a lot of ways, it's, it's simple, right? You just divide and you have plenty of room. But no, we have this conviction to be a one gathering church until we have no other option. And so that decision has already been made for us. We go, okay, what can we do? And so we have all these things that we're doing right now and they're very interesting and they're things that I never thought we would do. For example, we have submitted, some of you guys know this, we've submitted uh, architectural drawings to the city of Woodstock. They're approving those right now. We should hear back really soon to have another exit built out of our parking lot on this side so that if you park over here, you can get out of the parking lot a lot faster. We wouldn't have to worry about that if we had two services and the parking lot was not completely full on, on a Sunday by Sunday basis. But because we've decided out of conviction to stay as a one gathering church, well, we gotta figure that out. So what do we do? Well, we gotta, we gotta add another exit to the parking lot. There you go. So that's one of those decisions. We, we have to figure out how to shuttle people back and forth. Some of you guys parked at Lowe's this morning. Um, and I promise if you parked at Lowe's, we will give you a ride back. We will shuttle you back. And we're actually right now in the market for a shuttle. We are looking at, I never thought in my life that we would be looking for shuttles. And part of me doesn't like it. I don't know, I've never been like, you know what I would love to own one day, a shuttle. Um, the good news is I won't own it, we will own it. We will all own a shuttle together. So we're looking at shuttles because we're out of room in the parking lot. We're talking to someone else around here that, that uh, owns one of the parking lots and we're hoping to work out a deal with them because th there'd be an amazing parking option if they would, if they would say yes, so pray that they do, should hear back anytime. But we're having all these, these conversations because of convictions, because we've decided that we're supposed to be a one gathering, super unified church so that when someone gets baptized, everyone sees it. So that when, when God shows up in a way like he does sometimes, it's just really special, we're all together and we don't have to try to manufacture that feeling. We don't have to try to push through and make it happen again. It can just be we're together and we experience it. We're having to figure things out. And it's not easy, but it is simple because these decisions have been made for us. Our kids areas have exploded. You are very fruitful people. 
okay? <laughs> Very much. And so we have so many children. Last Sunday, we had 400 plus children. And so in our, in our a few claps for that, right? Interestingly enough, those claps came from this side of the room. And little factoid, um, this side of the room scales much older than the other side because those of you with kids typically come in those doors and you come here. And so the claps did not come from the people who have children. They came from the people whose children have grown. Okay, I'm just saying. And I know that there's a little mixture going on. I know that, I'm just saying. That's typically how it breaks down. But, so for example, we, we're knocking down a bunch of walls and we're creating this brand new space called the greenhouse. I think we have a rendering of that. We have had an architect come out and we've, we've, we have to get it permitted, all kinds of stuff. But we're doing that because we have to. We have to knock these walls down and build a new space in order to accommodate all the kids we have. But we also have to build a wall. We found that out two weeks ago because we had uh, almost 80 fourth and fifth graders and the room that they're in, the treehouse, not really designed for that. We're like, what do we do? So many of you guys uh, have seen this, this, well, you've all seen this because you're here. Uh, we have this big hallway that goes down all the way to the basketball court. This is a rendering of that big hallway, those glass doors down there, that's the basketball court. And we've realized that if we build a wall a little bit down that hallway, as you'll see here in this next rendering, um, it's gonna create this like big lobby space for the treehouse for our fourth and fifth graders. And that's gonna allow them to spread out and have a lot, a lot more room. We can grow that area even more and it'll create like a whole new check-in, check-out place so that that hallway, those of you who have fourth and fifth graders through high school, you know that the traffic that happens, you become really good friends really fast with the people if you check your kids out there. It'll alleviate some of that. And here's the thing, all of this stuff is kind of maddening. And half of, of my job right now is just like, well, what if we did that? What if we did that? God helped show us what to do. We're knocking these walls down. We're building these walls. We're tearing that parking lot up. We're gonna use that parking lot. We're buying a shuttle. <laughs> like, it's like, that's crazy. But the point is, even though there's challenges, it's really simple because we've, we've got a conviction that we want to be all together. And that's really important to us. And that conviction is important enough to us that it's made other decisions for us. And so instead of having a million different options, we have fewer options because again, convictions simplify your life. They make decisions for you. And if you will live by your convictions, if you'll know them and follow them to the best of your ability, you will find that your life is greatly simplified. And it, it actually makes life very manageable. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were people of conviction. They did what they believed was right. Romans chapter 12, verse two says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They never read that because they lived before it was written, but they lived it. They lived in a culture that did not share their values, that did, did them no help in terms of following God and doing what was right, but they chose to do it anyway. They did not conform to the pattern of this world. Rather, they lived by their convictions and their convictions set them apart. Their convictions got them into trouble, but their convictions simplified their lives. They made decisions for them and they allowed them to navigate a very difficult situation and they succeeded. And all of us can do the same. And so I just wanna encourage you, spend some time today, maybe in the drive home, talk in the, in the car, talk to yourself if you drove here on your, on your own, pray. What are my convictions? What, what do I believe is so vitally important? Like where would I plant my flag and say, this is where I stand and I'm not budging from this spot? Have convictions, know them, follow them. And when you fail to live up to them, because you will, don't abandon them. Just because you fail to live by your convictions from time to time doesn't mean you should abandon them. It just means you're not perfect and you try again. If we will be people of conviction, we will experience some of the same success and some of the same hardships, but ultimately some of the same success and significance that Daniel and his friends experienced. And if we wanna live significant lives, lives that matter, lives that have impact, those are going to be lives lived out of conviction, not convenience, but conviction. So I just encourage us all to spend some time this week reflecting on that. And with that said, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap up so worship team, you guys can, can make your way back out. We're gonna take Lord's Supper together. And if you're new, uh, as you walked into this room, there's these tables that have little cups with bread and juice. You can go grab one now. It is totally fine. Um, we do this every single week together, usually at the end of the message, sometimes at other points. But it's an opportunity to get our eyes on Jesus. 
And this is something that Jesus asked us to do. He said, whenever you get together, do this to remember me. Do this to remember me. And so when we get together, we do this to remember Jesus. And it's amazing how often this little meal connects to exactly what we're talking about. And it makes sense because Jesus actually once said that you search the scriptures looking for eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. So we're going through all the scriptures this year as much as we can, uh, you know, kind of a broad level view, but every single time we're studying anything, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, it points to Jesus. Amen. This meal represents a moment where Jesus lived out of a deep conviction. And thank God that he did because we wouldn't have salvation if he hadn't. You know, as you can imagine, Jesus, just like Daniel didn't wanna get thrown into a lion's den, just like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego probably didn't wanna be in that furnace. Jesus didn't want to be on the cross. He wasn't like excited about the pain and the torture and the humiliation. And so he prayed the very night that he shared this little meal with his friends where he broke bread and he took wine. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is gonna be broken for you. This, this, this wine for us, it's juice that represents my blood that's gonna be spilled. That same night he prayed and he said, Father, if there is any way to take this cup of suffering away from me, if there's any way at all, show me. And then he paused and it's like his convictions kicked in. And he said, but not what I want, not my will, but yours. So Lord, if there's another way, let me know. But, but Father, it's not about me, it's about you. That's a conviction that Jesus had. That he was gonna follow the Father no matter what. And because he followed his convictions, because he did what he knew was right, he died as a sacrifice in our place. And that means that our sins, that all the times that we have failed to live up to our convictions, because guys, I'll be honest, I've got all kinds of convictions that I have frequently, frequently gone against. And when that happens, right, you're left with guilt and shame and you feel like, you feel terrible, but you're forgiven because of this. You're forgiven because of what Jesus did, because he lived out his convictions. We have salvation, we have forgiveness for our sins, we have mercy, we have grace, and we have a restored relationship with God. And if you haven't experienced Jesus, if you've never put your trust in him, all it takes is faith, all it takes is belief, and you have freedom, and you have mercy, and you have grace and forgiveness, and you have a restored relationship with God. And so this is something to celebrate. Jesus lived by his convictions, and so can we. So let's take the bread. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this bread. Thank you for what it represents, what it reminds us of, your son dying on the cross in our place, his body broken to save us. He did what he knew was right and we're the ones who benefit from it. Thank you, Lord. Let's take the bread. Let's pray for the juice. Father, we thank you for this juice. We thank you for what it represents the blood of your son, this precious blood that purifies us, washes us, cleanses us. His death gives us life. Help us enjoy that and help us honor him by following his example and living out our convictions in this life. Let's take the juice.